This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. I'm Jarrett Lay, a dual degree graduate student in the Architecture and Critical, Curatorial and Conceptual Practices program at GSAP. Today I'm speaking with James Wines in advance of his lecture at the school on October 9th. James Wines founded SITE, an environmental art and design organization in New York City in 1970. His architecture, landscape, and public space designs have been influential for decades. The work is based on responses surrounding context and spans more than 150 projects internationally. Wines is also a professor of architecture at Penn State University, and he continues to write and lecture on, in, on integrative thinking and environmental issues internationally. Thank you for speaking with me today, James. I'm looking forward to having the chance to talk with you about a few topics. Just sort of dive right in, starting with more towards the beginning of your career. A key concept in your work during the 70s and 80s was a belief in a collective unconscious and in a universal symbolism, which could be explicated and produced in the built and unbuilt environment. I was wondering if you could speak to how you worked and thought through these concepts while arriving at iterations of your work. In particular, I'm wondering if they were structured through systems of drawing, making, et cetera. I started as a visual artist, and so I kind of moved into architecture sort of through the back door, which you know, I think the AI has never forgiven me for. But the one thing that I did take with me is the fact that there is usually a gap, a big gap conceptually between art and architecture, and I was taking art values through the back door and in, in the process, including things that, you know, make art interesting, which is psychological circumstances, environmental references, societal change. I mean, there are many things that you, I mean, look at the art scene today, it's completely, completely political now because of the kind of dire circumstances in which we find ourselves. So. You know, I, I entered architecture not so much as a design problem, but as using architecture as sort of a subject matter. And that's a very different point of view. And so that, that, that kind of describes the beginnings of, of, of my motivation, is that I really was looking at what would normally be a design problem or a function problem or a technology problem, even though all those things have to be included when you design a building, but they weren't the the main issue, they weren't the main element of communication. I was looking for other ways to kind of reach the audience in the public domain. And you know, my, my adventures were shared. There was a whole environmental art movement in, in Soho at that time, from about 1970 to the 80s, and it included people I'll talk about tonight, but, but really major you know, contributors to this whole contextual, environmental, different way of thinking, where a, a building isn't just about design, that it is about lots of other things as well. This distinguishment you, you often make between the task or process of design versus the task or process of, of art, right? And there's a long discourse on the set of procedures, methods, and techniques that architects will use in a so-called design problem. I'm curious if you could maybe speak to your process, your artistic process. Well, the process is, again, from an art perspective, where you really look at a circumstance, and what do people bring with them to that circumstance? Famous artists are known for specific things. Al Rauschenberg, for example, does this magnificent show at MoMA right now, and he said, well, I, I wanted to 
act in my work between art and life, and I understood perfectly. I mean, you know, he does paintings that you know, qualify as being paintings on the wall, but then there are elements of the paintings that wander out into the room and become part of the occupancy of that room. So you take with you to the museum the idea, well, I'm not there to look at paintings or sculptures, and I know what those are supposed to look like, and what's this guy doing? He's, he's obviously changing my mind. And, and Rauschenberger himself said it very well. He said, if you confront a painting that you've never seen before, and it doesn't change your mind about something. There's either something wrong with you or something wrong with the painting. And uh, so I think you know, artists, we, we all start with that idea. I, I, I started the shopping center world where no self-respecting Harvard-trained architect or artist would even consider because, oh my God, that's beneath contempt. But uh, I really love the junk world. You know, and it was Picasso who said it quite wisely, you don't, you don't, make art out of recreating the Parthenon, you make art out of the debris under your feet. And that's really true. So the junk world fascinated me. You know, that's where the people are. Mm -hmm. So if you want to communicate, if you want to put art where people least expect to find it, that's where they don't ever expect to find it. And so there was a, there was a challenge and a lot of fun because you're dealing with people's predisposition towards a circumstance. Absolutely. No, so it's interesting you use the word debris, right? You know, using the debris that you find on your feet. An intriguing move that you've made a lot, of course, is to indeed introduce or produce debris. Some of the more famous images of the best shopping mall in Texas, for example. And I'm wondering if you could speak to, in that sense, how you thought about, at least in the 70s and 80s, we're thinking about time. I know that you distinguished your work from other practitioners by saying that there is an urgency in addressing a meaning in the present versus, say, examining the, the symbols and processes of the past anew. How did you approach that when looking at the present? Well, in the process itself, I mean, I, I think a lot of it was looking at the context, which is, say, the junk world, the, you know, now much disdained big box shopping center and then basically making a critique of it. You're making a visual critique, so you're taking it apart, you're adding it. I always love the idea of process, for example, process as the finished product. You know, you're taking it apart, but why not just arrest it at some point in the middle, mm -hmm. and then it becomes, you don't know whether it's coming up or coming down or whatever, so you're suspending the process, which is interesting, and then, you know, I lived in Italy for you know a decade of my life, so. I was very aware of all kinds of elements of communication in art and architecture in fusion that I didn't see in modernism or a lot of modernism. There's certainly no art in Upper Sixth Avenue. The only way you would ever go to Upper Sixth Avenue is to work. I mean, you just can go home because there's absolutely no visual rewards. It's whatever buildings there are are basically design cliches that have been around 100 years and done badly with poor proportions and so forth. So you, you add up all that and you have nothing in a way and yet you have occupancy. And I always thought that occupancy isn't the only job, that there's other levels of communication. So each one of these early projects involved, you know, the jigsaw puzzle or dematerialization or transparency or things moving that you, you didn't expect to move or things staying still that you didn't expect to stay still. I mean, they all, all were motivated by some basic human 
instinct or presupposition when you come to the place. The one thing about conceptual art that you know has dominated, of course, the 20th, 20 and 21st century is where art doesn't necessarily have to play by the rules. It doesn't have to be mounted on a pedestal or framed on the wall. It can start with those premises. I always think that there's a great deal of power in starting with premises that people expect, because then when you deviate from those premises, people will say, oh my God, what's going on here? At least they're asking questions. You know, I think Deschamps said, you know, I'm really about questions, not answers, and the questions are always more interesting than the answers. Always, I agree with that. You mentioned the sort of based on a sort of, of, a gut, of a gut instinct or impression. Was that your gut instinct or impression of a site or a situation? Yeah, I, I think that becomes where, you, you, you know, you're sort of asking a question about what instinctively guided you. You know, you, you really don't know. I, I, I think Mozart's do anything, whether it's in any art form, have a hunch where they're going. I mean, you don't, you don't sort of know what you don't want to do. I certainly knew I didn't want to do Euro modernism. I, I knew I didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to. I'd already been a constructivist, sort of influenced sculptor, so I didn't want to do constructivism again. I just, there were just certain territories I feel that were so overworked yeah. and so oversaturated that uh, those were not territories that interested me very much. But then after that, it's sort of instinct. You, sometimes you look back, and, and um, my critique of, of all art, the things I like the best, is would you change anything? And, and if I look at it and I say, you know, there's nothing I would change, it's pretty successful. And you say that to yourself. I mean, there are things you look back at and say, oh, oh my God, how did I ever produce that? I, I must have been out of my mind. Or, that's really terrible. Or, and then the other things you look at and say, wow, I was really smart. You know, I really did it. I really pulled it off. And I think that's true of everything. I mean, you know, I take architecture students to art shows because I know in general they don't understand what they're looking at. And invariably, I ask them, well, the Rauschenberg show, case in point, all right, it's just, you know, this looks weird to you, I'm sure, and all of this doesn't look like normal painting. Why don't you go around and pick the five greatest pieces, the ones that were really the most, the best. And they always pick the best because there's something inherently and instinctive about that. You know, every, almost everyone picked the monogram with the goat on top of the painting on the floor. First of all, the painting was on the floor and then the goat was on top of it. And there were a lot of icons and symbols and juxtapositions and everything that were really, really ripped apart. Your whole, all of those conventions of painting and they asked you to rethink painting. And so that was a incredibly powerful work. I mean, it, I, you look at it, you can't change anything. But then there are other Rauschenbergs, especially when he started kind of doing tapestry-like silk screens, kind of Ali Warhol or something. I thought those were much weaker. And none of the students picked them as, as powerful. They always picked the ones that just clicked, something clicked. And it can be, you know, people always ask me, well, who's your favorite artist or who's your favorite Architects, I say I have a lot of favorites. It just depends on the work I'm looking at if it comes off. And if it really comes off and I stand there in awe, my partner always used to say, if it raises the hair on the back of your neck and say, oh shit, why didn't I think of that? And if really jealousy overcomes you, that's a good work of art. And I, I really think that's true, whether it's, I'm looking at a Rothko or a Donald Judd or Rauschenberg or Jasper Johns or, or, or anybody, you know. I always 
if I'm looking at the work and it just sells me completely, then it, it came off. One, you say, I, I could never repeat it. To imitate it would be absurd. And because it's so good as it is, and yet I can learn a lot from it. I don't know how much control any artist has over the things that really hit the jackpot. I, I, I always wonder about that because they all have, we all have a few things that everyone agrees is, you know, if you're successful, you're, that was really good. And, and they're usually just a handful of things that reach that threshold. And they usually have kind of an epical meaning too. They're meaning something to not just the work itself, but something about the whole profession. That something was needed. Somebody had to make, yeah, as Rauschenberg is a good example, somebody had to make the paintings walk into the room. I mean, collage had already been invented. I mean, you know, Picasso was a master of collage. But somebody had to go another step. There had to be another dimension, another meaning, or another something. There's always another chapter to go. And I think the fundamental thing for any person who wants to call themselves an artist is they they have to start with some critique, basically something they want to try to do, and then hope for the best when you, if you pull it off. To shift gears a little bit, among your work, one really stuck out to me, which was your 1986 piece called All Steel Archaeology, in which you've taken 75 years worth of designs by this furniture company, and then taken the more historical work, and then filled that space in with, with cement, right? Sort of, if you will, producing a false historical environment in which they would be presented alongside the newer work. And that seems like a fascinating task of applying archaeology in order to design an historical time, if you will. And I, and I was wondering if you could sort of speak to, to how you thought about archaeology, which is, of course, a reappearing theme both in language as well as in visuals and methods throughout your work. And I was wondering if you could to talk more about how you, how you think about archaeology. Well, you've actually described it more intelligently than I've ever heard that particular word described. You sort of leave me with nothing to say. No, you got it, you got it perfectly. Basically, it was a furniture company who's, where they designed furniture that was pretty ordinary. I mean, they you know, design our furniture show, and so I'm desperately trying to think, well, what can I do? I mean, you know, you, it's very hard to celebrate, and it's also hard to critique, because it, it's functional, and it works well, and it's attractive, and, but what can I find? And I, and I sort of searched around and said, well, wouldn't it be interesting to strip off everything that makes it into conventional furniture, you know, usable furniture, and go back to the bare bones, which is, they call themselves all steel. Mm -hmm. So why not go back to the steel, yeah. to the origins? And then we not only went back to the origins, but we also had all the rolls of steel mm -hmm. materials. We had everything there. there was, it was the materials and the process and everything. So the process is on the ceiling and the reality was on the floor. Yeah. So you're do, it, it's, it, it wants a critique, but it's also a kind of celebration. Mm -hmm. So you're doing, so you're not making the client angry, but the other time, and you're giving the, you know, the viewer at least some fun in looking at the situation because everybody's gonna sooner or later realize that, you know, isn't the ceiling really more interesting than the floor? And uh, so that becomes sort of a critical context. And at the other side, they look and say, God, yeah, this place, this stuff really is well made. 
So again, you're dealing with process and critique simultaneously. But all, as you said, in this sort of critical context, which I think is really important. I'd like to jump to your entry for Max Protect's exhibition on the World Trade Center Memorial. In Site's proposal, you proposed a return to the pre-World Trade Center street network, as well as a garden of trees and the footprints of the towers which would commemorate the first responders. I think that this is a very interesting example in which many of the themes of your career's work seem to intersect. On the one hand, we see the this 70s and 80s interest in articulating a contemporary iconography and meeting. And on the other, we see an, an interest in, of course, the ecological, the public, the communicative. And I was wondering how you grappled in designing this proposal with producing a present condition given the past atrocities that had taken place on the site. It was obviously a difficult situation. Obviously, it's a, a long story. The most disappointing about it all was that the actual elements, key elements of our design, the water walls and the vegetation and the uh, light towers, you know, just light shining into the sky, Literally every one of them was stolen, if I dare say so, for the final design, and we were eliminated from the final group of people selected to design it. Everything in the early drawings was pretty much exactly what they ended up doing. We had a lot of differences in, in the readability and intimate sanctuaries for people, as opposed well to big spaces and so forth. And, and then the, the use of, I think, was the pine trees, this kind of vegetation, which came from Italy, of course. But the actual looking at it, uh, we had read the article, I think it was New York Magazine, which was a cover story two years before, that the World Trade Center buildings and the plaza and everything were the most hated buildings in New York from design and size. And Because I remember jokes at the time, they asked Yamasaki, well, you know, why he did two half-mile-high buildings instead of one-mile-high buildings. He said, oh, well, then it wouldn't have had human scale. So, I mean, there was absurdities built into the whole thing, and there was also a dislike of the buildings. Then, absurdly, on the part of the terrorists, they decided to attack something that wasn't even a symbol, really, except to them. I mean, I guess it's a financial area of Manhattan. But it wasn't, like if they attacked the Empire State Building or the Woolworth Building or something beloved, you know. So it, it was a, a mixed tragedy on, on many, many, on many levels. And I was with a, a group of architects and artists and everything who really felt that what they should do, since everybody hated the, the way the site was disposed anyway, how, they, how it had been designed in the World Trade Center, that they just restore it to what it used to be. It, it was partially, of course, destroyed in that period of Robert Moses' 60s period of, you know, putting highway through the middle of Soho, which, you know, Jane Jacobs saved. But he made more progress downtown, and, and that whole neighborhood had been completely destroyed as small buildings, small streets and everything. So we thought, well, you can't get the buildings back, but you can get a park. So we thought it really should be park-like and then divided back into the smaller streets. I mean, just lay down the old plan, which would make it more intimate to begin with, and then start planting trees is one thing. And then we thought, well, there's going to have to be something to replace the office space. So we put in a pocket of office space and then a memorial, which would, you know, would be 
the, the footprint of the place to begin with. So the footprint would be the, have the memorial elements and, and have occupancy for business because he didn't want to really eliminate the business. So as an all-over scheme, that was, the, that was the general plan of attack. And uh, as I say, the rest is history. They, we got eliminated, which I was really upset by, from the competition with an idea like that in mind. We already had the idea in mind to what we wanted to do. And I think, you know, lots of adjustments always have to be made in this kind of thing. But I would have, you know, there were a lot of things I would like to have seen done that weren't done, that was for sure. Was the possibility given to include or incorporate some of the ruins or fragments of the building? I ask because of given the constant reappearance of the ruin in your portfolio of work. Well, it wasn't really, you know, people use the word ruin, it really wasn't that. I think it was more like the process. I was always interested in anything that could be identified as part of the process, whether it's taking it away or adding it or spreading it out. So many of our things, you know, they're all about context. Everything we've ever done has had something to do with the context. So you're either bleeding it in or bleeding it out or taking advantage of people's predisposition or, or something about that is already there. So, you know, that, it, that fit in the same thing. There was something already there that had been taken away, and you're, you, you want to bring the better parts of that back. You can't, you know, just eliminate it. But at the same time, you can add other elements which, which were originally there and taken away. So, in a sense, they're an archaeology. I think the word archaeology is probably a more accurate word than ruin. Uh, I'm always interested in the archaeology of the place because that's defined the context. That's, that's kind of the raw material of your content. My final question would be to land on, what is the status of the public today in your mind? And given the public as a, um, a space of intervention in your early work, what is the task of the artist and architect in today's conversation about the public? In terms of a fundamental objective, I still think that context is everything. I really think that's a very solid starting point. And my whole lecture tonight is exactly what you're asking. That's what the whole problem is. What do we do now? We have the internet, we have Facebook, we have, you know, we have all these other means of communication. What is the role of public domain now? What is that role? And we're all building in the public domain. And so clearly, you know, what you did 30, 40 years ago, it has relevance as history, but it, it, you know, you have to keep changing all the time. It, it, it has different meanings. I'm far more interested now in just the, just public space. Just what is space doing? It's either a place for, you know, violence in some cases, or it's a place for incredible peaceful harmony. I mean, it has this huge spread of opportunities. People look at the internet as sort of salvation of communication and. In some cases it is, and in some cases it's almost the opposite. Mm -hmm. There's a huge conflict with, with anything electronic or anything mechanical, whereas human interaction is, is probably healthier in the long run. Whether they have an agenda to protest or whether they're there for brotherly love, who knows? I mean, what, but there is something to be done. And I, I would say that's the role, to me that's the role of architecture and public space now, is, is what, how can we bring things together as opposed to and create this incredible separation. And it still involves critique, it still involves, you know, landscape, it still involves spaces that people love to be in, you know, that they, they want to be there and so forth. 
So you see political efficacy in architecture and arts manipulation of public space. Yeah, again, people gravitate to whatever they feel interested in or, or like or question, you know, as I say, questions and answers. You know, the things that I, of ours that have lasted the longest are the ones that still evoke some kind of questioning. I go, why did you do that? And where it might have been rejected in the first place, which it certainly was, that we had, you know, absolutely devastating critiques in the beginning of Scythe and kind of architectural record, you know, that kind of magazine. And uh, they only softened up when it just got to be so pervasive in the media that they couldn't ignore it anymore. They had to say something. But all of that, that communication thing is very, very, it became, becomes important no matter what. I mean, I'm not sure that we need any more controversy in the world. We certainly have plenty of that. Maybe we need, you know, reverse the controversy and get to the to better messages. But uh, again, I'm, I kind of that's an open question. That's a, the younger generation to do. <laughs> well, I guess that's for us to take on then. Well, great. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.